Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program celebrating New York, its history, texture, and the vibe of this amazing city. And we do it through interviews. Ah, here goes the music again. (laughs) Good to queue up again. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. Although you won't see any elected officials tonight on our program because it's primary day here in New York. On some shows, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes, like tonight, we celebrate an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes have covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in New York, about half of them, by the way. We've looked at the history of women activists and the suffrage movement. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, including people who were brought here enslaved. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. We've looked at punk and opera. Those were separate shows, by the way. We've looked at our library systems. New York has three, everyone. We have three library systems in the city. We visited the subway. We've looked at public art. We've explored our train stations and even some of our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can catch us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts, as well as other services. Tonight's one of those special shows where we're not looking at a particular neighborhood, but a theme and a very important part of the backbone of this amazing city, Um, specifically arts organizations, but not the arts organizations that that most of our listeners may know of well or have heard of. There is a very essential part of the city in grassroots and local arts organizations that frequently uh, are undersung and underappreciated. And tonight I wanted to explore some of those organizations as well as the role that they play in the city's culture and also in the vital energy of what makes the city great. We have two guests tonight. My first guest is Craig Peterson. Greg joined the staff at the Abram Arts Center in New York's Lower East Side in September of 2016 as artistic director. He was recently elevated to executive artistic director. Previously, he was the director of programs at Gibney Dance. That's a multifaceted center for dance and performance development. From 2009 to 2013, Craig was the director and producer of the annual Philly Fringe Festival. It's a three-week citywide festival featuring the work of more than 200 performing artists and companies. During this time, he also launched and directed the Live Arts Brewery, also acronymed as LAB, a research and development program supporting long-term residencies and engagement activities for local and national artists. For 10 years, Craig served on the staff of Dance Theater Workshop. It's one of the country's preeminent contemporary performing arts institutions that's based in New York. Four years, he served as the organization's co-artistic director. Craig Peterson, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. You're not unmuted. We have to unmute you. There you go. Thank you. For, thank you for having me. Sorry, I somehow got muted. No worries. That's, it happen- that's it happen- the, re- the refrain of the year, I guess, right? You're on mute. Right. <laughs> You're on mute, right? <laughs> not surprising to any of us. Um, Craig, are you from New York originally? No, originally I'm from uh, New England, actually, but I went to school in upstate New York at Bard College. So I was uh, uh, just a couple hours north for a good little portion of my life right before I moved down here. Oh, we're neighbors. I went to Vassar in Poughkeepsie. Bard is uh, oh, cool. a, little, a little bit up, uh, a little bit up Route Nine. Right. Um, um, what were your earliest engagements with the arts, Craig? When did you start uh, feeling that the arts was the way that 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 you would go in your life? Oh well, um, I, I mean, I, I always grew up going. My my family was very supportive of the arts and took me to a lot of. Uh, a lot of events, even though we lived in a rural area. Um, I didn't really get hooked on performance though until I was in high school and I went to a performance of the Merce Cunningham Dance Company and kind of fell in love with dance in a weird um, sort of way um, in which I kind of became a little obsessed with contemporary dance and, um, and pursued it as I went to college. Hmm. I'm going to ask you about about your work in dance um, in in a couple of minutes. Um, when did you decide that you would make a career out of playing leadership 
um, and artistic creative roles in arts organizations. This is very different to be an artist and one to say, I'm, I'm actually going to facilitate uh, bringing art to, to the public. Yeah, I mean, I moved to New York to be an artist, uh, you know, as so many people do, but I was not, um, I don't think I was very good and I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't, uh, it's a hard life. It's not an easy job. And so um, I ended up getting a job at Dance Theater Workshop, which is now um, New York Live Arts, a, a newer, newer organization, um, and uh, was sort of using it as an opportunity to stay connected to the arts field as I continued to dance and, and make my own work. And slowly, I don't think I ever decided uh, to be an arts organization leader. It just, you know, over time, it just sort of... Um, became the direction where I found I was more, um, more suited and, and more able to make an impact and have a different, make a difference. Was the dance theater workshop your first foray into, you know, working on the inside of an arts organization and not just being an an artist, a performer? Yeah. Yeah. Dance theater workshop was a a fairly small, but deeply impactful organization. It had been around for a couple decades by the time I got there. I was, I came in as an entry level, in an entry level position, um, and just sort of slowly worked my way up through the ranks. Um, I started, as I said, in a sort of artist services job, and by the time I left, I was uh, one of the artistic directors there. Mm -hmm. So, um, as I said, it was sort of a slow um, evolution into the role of curating and programming and building um, infrastructure for artists to perform and present their work at the, at the space. When did you join the Philly Fringe Festival? And I know this is going to sound like a, a stupid question, but, but is it based in Philadelphia or is it just sort of a, a, a yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. I moved to Philadelphia a couple of years after my kids were born. Um, I had, I had taken some time off to be with my kids and um, uh, got invited to join the staff there to start their artist residency programming, which was the live arts brewery. Um, and I really love doing residency work generally because it's, it's, uh, brings you into really close contact with artists and their creative process. And it's a little less, um, sometimes than presenting can be, you get more involved and more engaged in people's, um, in people's making processes. Um, and then, uh, over time I took on taking, uh, uh running the Philadelphia Fringe Festival, which is sort of an open platform festival that features you know 150 200 different artists each september alongside a curated program um by the same organization Hmm. what is live arts brewery exactly it has a it has a really great name sort of uh uh fostering you 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 think of arts being uh uh, matured and and fostered in a in a big brewing kettle yeah well it was it got that name mainly because we were in a building that used to be an old brewery and so it you know, the acronym lab and the idea of a brewery where things, ideas are percolating. And um, so, uh, the, but the, the program itself is something that we kind of built from the ground up. It was really to help and serve artists within the Philadelphia community and bring them into contact with other artists around the country. And, um, and it provided long-term residencies for artists to build and make new work. Uh, that eventually would find find its place on a stage somewhere in Philadelphia or beyond. And then it kind of, we cracked it open a bit and began to invite other artists in from around the country and, uh, you know, use that as an opportunity to collaborate with other organizations, um, including your next guest, Brian Rogers, who um, we worked together on, an, on a national project, uh, helping uh, artists to develop their work across our spaces. When did you join Gibney Dance? I moved back to New York, I believe, in 2014. Um, I had I had recently left the the Philadelphia Fringe, and you know I loved Philly. I love the artist community there. It's a really rich community, um, and it's a really um, it's it's very robust for the its size. But I just missed New York. I was ready. To, I was ready to come back. I'd been there for about six years, um, and it was actually an artist who told me I should move back. I was having dinner with her, and I was talking about, you know, my, you know, where I was and what I wanted to do. And she said, you have to move back. This, this isn't the right city for you. Come home. And so I, I moved back to New York in 2014 and took on the um, job of programming director at Gibney Dance, which uh, was a new, uh, it, it's an older organization, but it had just opened a new space with some performing arts venues. And 
Um, so I took the helm there to launch a, a presenting program for the organization um, before I moved on to Abrams Art Center. And when did you join Abrams Art Center and, and what sort of happened that had you go, okay, it's time for me to, to move from Gidney to Abrams? Um, I joined Abrams in 2016. Um, I had, uh, was very intrigued by Abrams and the, the work that it presented, but I was also uh, really enamored with the idea that Abrams Art Center is actually a part of Henry Street Settlement, which is a large social service organization on the Lower East Side. And was, I was it always really, part of the Was it always part of the settlement? Yeah, it's been a part of the settlement since the beginning. The settlement was started in the, the 1890s. Uh, the Playhouse at Abrams Art Center was built in 1915, um, and the story goes that Lillian Wall, the founder of of Henry Street Settlement had these two um, friends, they were philanthropists, and they offered to build her a theater. And um, uh, it, it was an interesting story because um, the, the founder of Henry Street really believed that arts and culture were really fundamental to providing social service to people, you know, in addition to providing health care and, and nursing services. She believed strongly that, that arts were uh, vital to the development of communities. And so she jumped on board and they built this theater together. Um, what was sort of create a, created a tension point was these two sisters also had their own theater company and wanted to use the theater for themselves. And so there was this sort of interesting tension point between who is this space for the, you know, professional actors or for the community. And that tension or that, um, you know, sort of inherent conflict is really a fascinating point for me because I've always liked to live between those two spaces of trying to figure out, you know, who is art for and who who benefits from from the services that arts organizations can provide. Is that still a theme now in the organization? Has that, uh, I don't want to call it a conflict, you may, but has, has that uh, sort of back and forth, has, does it still exist at Abrams? Yeah, absolutely. I think it exists and on some level in every arts organization, um, but at, at Abrams and especially, you know, with its unique structure of being a part of Henry Street Settlement, um, it's, uh, we are constantly kind of looking at um, the role that arts and culture can play within the context of our neighborhood. The, the Henry Street Settlement is a very neighborhood family focused organization. So it's providing services, you know, workforce and development services, education services, healthcare, mental health care, senior care. So the, the job that I feel like I have or that I, I uh, uh, really sort of try to, to, to get my, myself messy in is the idea of how to bring arts to all of those other programs across the agency, in addition to being a space that's progressive and forward thinking and is creating experimental, uh, experimental art, which um, is ultimately the mission of Abrams. Oh, all right. Well, we're going to take a short uh, break, Craig. And when we come back, everyone who's listening, we're going to continue our conversation with Craig Peterson. He's the artistic director of the Abrams Arts Center at the, I'm sorry, the executive artistic director, I got your title wrong, at the Abrams Arts Center. That's part of the Henry Street Settlement. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. 
We join together each Monday at 7 p.m. So tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Inning. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. back to Rediscovering New York and our episode on arts organizations, smaller arts organizations that many people may not have heard of, but that make up quite, a, quite an important part of the arts here in New York. My first guest is Craig Peterson. Craig is the executive artistic director of the Abrams Art Center at the Hendrick Street Settlement on the Lower East Side. Craig, what kind of programming do you have at Abrams? We do uh, multidisciplinary arts programming. We're probably most known as a, a theater for dance or experimental theater. Uh, we have three venues, a large playhouse. It's about 300 seats and then two smaller venues um, that are less than 100 seats. And then we also have about three, we have three gallery spaces um, where we present visual art and we also have um, classrooms. So it's a four. Square foot facility. It's not small, um, but we and we run um, education programs usually year round in non COVID times and summer arts camp. Um, but we uh, we do um, present art mainly across uh, dance, theater, uh, visual art, and some music as well. Hmm. Earl, before the break, you you spoke about trying to integrate, not trying, but integrating. Uh, the artistic programming with the mission, with a larger mission of the settlement. Um, how do you do that? What do you, it, is it only in terms of how you come up with the programs or it's also how you execute them? Uh, I, I guess I would say yes to all of that. I mean, it's, um, it's definitely a tension point that's not easy to, um, kind of, you, you know, it's, it's not easy to capture with every single project, but um, I think the the way that I try to approach the work is look try, trying to look for intersections of interests um, and um, really in many ways using the Lower East Side as a backdrop for some bigger, broader conversations. The Lower East Side is a really dynamic neighborhood with a really rich history, particularly with uh, different immigrant communities coming through the Lower East Side. Um, and uh, the residual effects of that is that it's a very diverse neighborhood still today. And so there's a lot of issues that are going on in the Lower East Side in particular, as, you know, that um, we can zero in on as, as interesting topics to explore, you know, income disparity or policing or uh, gun violence, things like that, that can be um, a hyper-local conversation and can then be sort of lifted into um uh, bigger citywide or um, national or international conversations about immigration or um, other, you know, larger topics that, um, so we really try to, you know, I think when we look at programming, we try to use the Lower East Side as sort of a canvas from which to kind of pull out ideas and, and conversation points that can then be um, kind of brought into a, a, a larger mainstream discourse. In full disclosure, I'm asking you about Abrams, but I I used to live a block away uh, from the Lower East Side on Second Street for 16 years. <laughs> so I, I've actually been to uh, Abrams, uh, not in a long time, because I moved to Harlem about seven years ago. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about challenges, but n- not related to the neighborhood or to um, uh, the settlement, but specifically about an arts organization that's the size of Abrams. A lot of people don't know of it. 
they're accustomed to hearing of much larger organizations and larger performing arts organizations. What kind of challenges do you face as an arts organization that is really smaller than so many others that, that are well known? Is, is there a special set of challenges that you have to deal with to either create the programming or to um, uh, have you be heard in the city? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I mean, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I have always worked at small arts organizations and that's always been a choice I've made. Um, I think I've, I've kind of oriented myself that way because I really enjoy working with younger or early career to mid-career artists. Um, a lot of folks who kind of grow up in this industry kind of grow up and go to larger institutions as they go along, you know, kind of carried along with the artists that they work with. Um, I really enjoy kind of exploring um, how to create um, opportunity and entry points for people. I think in terms of challenges that smaller arts organizations, arts organizations face, it, I don't think it's, it's terribly different than large arts organizations. It's always about, you know, funding and ability to deliver programs. I mean, one, one um, benefit to working in a small theater, for example, is that we don't, uh, ticket sales are not a, an economic model for us. So we don't program based on how many tickets we can sell generally. We program based on type of programs we want to present and support um, as opposed to say a for-profit theater or a large theater that really relies heavily on the economic um, engine of ticket sales. Um, but that doesn't mean we're without uh, financial challenges. It's that, that I would say is always the biggest challenge is trying to, trying to resource the work that we want to do and resource the artists who are doing the work with us. What would you say are some of your biggest accomplishments as executive artistic director of Abrams? Oh, gosh, that's a hard question for me. I don't like to toot my own horn in that way. Um, well, I like my guests to be proud of their accomplishments. And, uh, and, and I have to ask a, a hard question or two in, in a segment. You know, I can't just have it be total, total softballs. Yeah, no, no. I, um, I think, you know, as I said, I think I really enjoy um, the attention point of trying to figure out what the role is of a local um, arts organization is. I'm, I'm very fascinated by the idea of a community arts organization as it butts up against an experimental arts organization. I really enjoy and, um, you know, uh, feel like we've had a, a couple of really great successes and kind of finding that sweet spot between all of the intersecting communities that, that live in our neighborhood and around us and uh, allow us to have an impact on a broader, on a broader stage. Well, I'm going to ask you another toot your own horn question. Well, toot the organization horn. What would you say has been some of your most notable uh, events or performances that you're most proud of? I know you're proud of all of them, but the ones that really, you know, stand out to, to, uh, accomplishments and things that you've done that might have pushed the envelope or that uh, really got acknowledged as being ex- exceptional. Um, I think there's been there's been several, and you know you always kind of hope that each each um, project that you invest time and energy in, you always hope that that will be the thing that kind of um, uh, hits the most you know possible layers of of communities that you can reach. Um, you know, we do a really fun holiday show every year that's really neighborhood focused. It's a it's a sort of based on an English pantomime tradition, which is really fun. Um, we had a really uh, fabulous photo exhibit last year, just before COVID, that um, was called uh, Rainbow Shoe Repair Shop, and it was uh, uh, really centered around a local business that had, through the '80s and '90s, taken portraits of people in the neighborhood. People would stop in to get their prom picture taken or uh, just stop in to kind of show off a, a cool outfit that they had that they had bought. And so we collected these archive photos from around the neighborhood and displayed them. Um, and it was this really interesting juxtaposition of, you know, fashion and community pride and, and art kind of all colliding in one, uh, one sort of spectacular show that was really fun um i could go on there's a lot of shows that i'm super proud of i'm mostly proud though like the um, i'm mostly proud of the fact that we're able to continue supporting artists and bringing new people in and giving them the opportunity to to put their work out there 
as an arts organization, Craig, that is part of a local so- social service organization, um, would you say that most of the people who attend events and performances are actually from the Lower East Side? Or do you get a real cross-section of people who live in the neighborhood and also who come from other parts of the city to, to appreciate what you, what you offer? It really depends. It depends on the show and it depends on, um, you know, the, the type of uh, not only the content, but how we kind of connect with the audiences that, that may come in. I would say mostly, though, our audiences come from it. Uh, beyond the neighborhood um uh depending though you know if something is a is a very hyper local issue it will it will draw in a crowd from from the neighborhood but we do a tremendous amount of outreach to um schools in the neighborhood so we're reaching a lot of uh young people to come in and see work throughout the year um so i i would say it's a real cross-section um like uh we we are not a we we operate sometimes as a as a local sort of community arts organization but in terms of an arts presenter we are internationally recognized and so we have a lot of we do present the work of international artists and so uh there there are people from all over that tune in and try to you know see what's going on in our space i'd like to ask you a broader city uh question as we uh are coming out of the pandemic or as most of us are coming out of the pandemic what role would you say that New York City arts organizations, especially community arts organizations and artists can play in not only the economic, but also the spiritual recovery of the city as we come out of COVID? You know, uh, I think that's a question that's a lot of arts organizations have been asking themselves over the, you know, not, not only, you know, how we, how we come out of this, but, you know, what is our role to play, uh, especially in times of crisis like this? You know, I, um, I've, I've, I've rejected the idea that somehow artists are going to pull us out of this um, because I think artists have already been pulling us through this um, in, you know, a number of ways. I think that, um, you know, when we, when we think back, what, you know, what are the things that sort of got us through the dark days of the pandemic? It was books, it was music, it was YouTube, it was, you know, all kinds of content created by artists and so um i feel like artists have been there with us all along um i think as a small arts organization um we've found other uses for our space during the pandemic um you know very early on we transitioned a big portion of our building into a food pantry uh, that was powered by technicians and and arts workers um and so we have really tried to find ways to um, connect with our neighborhood in different ways um, throughout the pandemic. But as I said, I think that uh, I think that we owe a great debt to artists right now because I think that they're the only things, the only people that have really kept us sane through a really, really difficult time and really helped to um, kind of keep us grounded, keep us in community with each other and keep us thinking creatively. One more question before we go. Um... What programs do you have coming up in the near future that you'd like to tell our listeners about and have them maybe check out on uh, uh, at the organization? I'm also going to ask you for your for your contact info for the website for Abrams. Sure. Uh, we have a show opening actually on uh, Friday evening by Autumn Night. Um, uh, it's a performance that we're doing outdoors in our amphitheater for three nights, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and we also have uh, an opening of a visual art exhibit called Counter Flags, which is um, an exhibition in our galleries or, uh, that looks at, uh, is exploring colonialism and sort of what, the, what flags can and do represent in terms of colonial power. Um, and that also opens this weekend. So we're going out of uh, June with a big bang. <laughs> and your website is? Uh, abramsartcenter.org. Okay, easy enough to remember. Craig Peterson, Executive Artistic Director of the Abram Arts Center at the Henry Street Settlement. Thank you so much for your time and coming on, on the show tonight. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak to a leader of another local arts organization that's a little bit different from Abrams. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift educate, empower. 
Hey, everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back and you're back to rediscovering new york support from the program comes from our sponsors the mark myman team mortgage strategist at freedom mortgage for assistance in any kind of residential mortgage mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735 and support also comes from the law offices of thomas siaka focusing on wills estate planning probate and inheritance litigation tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495 0317. You can like the show on Facebook and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on all three are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions or would like to get on our mailing list, you can email me Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though the program is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I'm indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is Brian Rogers. Brian is a director, filmmaker, and video and sound artist, and he's the co-founder and artistic director of the Chocolate Factory Theater, which supports the creation of theater, dance, music, and multimedia performance, at its 5,000-square-foot facility in Long Island City. That's in Queens, by the way. Since 1997, Brian has conceived and or directed numerous large-scale films and performances at the Chocolate Factory, including and other places, including Screamers. That was actually at the Abrams Arts Center. Hotbox, that's Line Festival, and PS122's Coil Festival, and the Bessie-nominated Selective Memory. Brian recently composed a soundtrack for Sean Iron and Lauren Petty's film, Standing by Gats Backstage, and he's collaborated as a sound and video artist with numerous experimental dance and theater artists in New York and elsewhere. In addition to his own work, Brian curates the Chocolate Factory's artistic program now in its 17th year. It supports the work of more than 100 dance, theater, music, and interdisciplinary artists every year. Brian Rogers, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Nice to be here. Thank you. Are you from the city originally? No, I um, I was born in Los Angeles, but I grew up um, mainly in Idaho, Idaho Falls, Idaho. So as far from New York as you can get. 
I think so. Yes. Culturally as well as uh, almost yeah. on the other side of the country. What brought you to New York? I'm guessing art had something to do with it, but, but yeah, I always like to ask my guests who are here, why, you know, what landed them in New York? Yeah, no art. I mean, I, I went to college um, um, in Vermont at Bennington college and it would, it was actually not even a, um, a question of where I would go after that. It's a really interesting thing to reflect on. I feel like as an, as a student in art school um, in the nineties, it was just almost assumed that we would come to New York um, because that's where all the, that's where all the action was. Really, did you go to Bennington to study art specifically, or is it something that interested you after you matriculated? Um, no, I went to Bennington to study art, um, um, mainly theater and um, and music. Um, but I, I, I would say that I found sort of the community of people that I'm part of now once I got to New York. But art has always been the path that I was um, trying to chase. And you helped found the Chocolate Factory. Uh, did you decide that one day you would play a leadership role in helping to create an arts organization, Brian? Or did your leadership role, did your, your founding of the Chocolate Factory happen more organically all of a sudden you decided to do it? I would call it a total accident in a way. I mean, I, 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 I sort of would question whether anyone um, sets out to, be, to take a leadership role in, in, in the arts world. I think these things happen to people rather than um, people making it happen for themselves in a way, but no, I, um, I had no vision, um, for this to happen. It, it, it came organically over, over years. Well, before we talk about the history and programming of the organization, I got to ask you, chocolate's one of the very big loves of my life. How did the organization get its name? How'd you come up with the name for it? Um, well, the very first space that we had, um, in the, in Long Island city, not the, not the space that we occupy now, but the space that we, that we had for one year just before had, had been in its previous life, um, a chocolate factory. And oh. someone, wrote a, someone wrote an article about us for a Queens newspaper and unearthed this information and, um, and told us about it. So that the name was obvious and it just stuck. Hmm. Well, when I worked in uh, digital, I actually worked for a company uh, that was based in Baltimore uh, in the ivory building, but the chocolate factory is much more appetizing than yes, soap. Uh, you don't want to think about putting ivory in your mouth. That's um, true. What, tell us about the history of the chocolate factory. How did you get it started? What was, what, what, what was this genesis? Well, I mean, we start, so um, uh, the factory's other co-founder, whose name is Sheila Lewandowski, she and I, um, were um, making work, making theater work together as independent artists. And we were sort of itinerant moving um, from space to space around the city. And then at a certain point, it occurred to us that we really would benefit from having a space of our own just to support our own work. Um, and, and we both lived in Long Island City in Queens at the time. And we um, found a space um, close to where we lived and managed to make a relationship with the landlord. And um, it's sort of one of those, I think, unique New York stories that's, it's, it's so rare. We, we, you know, we managed to forge a relationship with the landlord who then offered us um, a very long lease at a very favorable rent. Um, and so we were just able to, to make that thing happen in a way that I think very few people can. And it, and that's, I think, um, mainly blind luck that that, that that could happen for us. But really it was just initially um, about finding a way cheaply for us to support um, our own work. And, um, and there was no vision for the larger thing that the chocolate factory um, eventually has become, although we're still quite small. I, had, I, I never envisioned that we would be um, a presenting organization or that I'd be a curator. It just kind of happened. Um, we found the space and then almost immediately artists heard that the space was there and, and would knock on the door and ask if they could do things there. And I saw, we saw an opportunity to potentially build a community around the place. If we could, um, find a way to support artists outside of ourselves and forge, um, a clear, um, perspective or identity around the thing that we were doing. Mm. So, it, so we decided to take that leap and, um, it sort of slowly grew um, year after year since that time, which is 17 years ago now. So, Wow. When would you say that the Chocolate Factory began to make that change? Was it, was it soon after you, you formed or was it more recent? Um, it was soon after we formed, but it, it, took, it took quite a long time for it 
to begin to bear fruit, I would say. I mean, we started that organization um, or that space rather in 2004 with no money. And so none of, we were doing this work um, on a volunteer basis um, and the artists were working just for a, sh- a cut of the very minuscule box office. And we, we functioned that way for five or six years. And then um, the tide started to really turn. And there was, um, you know, suddenly after all of these years, a kind of um, growth of support from foundations. And we were able to raise more money and begin to pay ourselves and begin to commission, actually commission artists to make work and pay the artists better. But it took, it took um, quite a long time for that to happen. You know, well, I'd like, I don't know if you want to tell me, but I'd like to ask, uh, how did you get the landlord to, <laughs> to go along with that in the beginning stages when, when money was so tight? I mean, that's, that in itself is an incredible feat. It's, you know, I, I, my memory of it is that, you know, we, we met a person who had a, um, a profound, uh, and our landlord, he passed away a few years ago. His name is John Kosan. Um, he had a profound personal connection to that, to the space, which, which had been his father's business. And um, when we first met him, his mother, who was quite old, was still um was still living at that point. And Sheila was able to just forge some kind of connection to, to John's mother. And we explained to him what we were doing. And he just felt, he just had some kind of, um, he understood somehow that there was something special that could happen in this space that wasn't really, was really important to him. He was one of those, I think, rare landlords in New York City that was not motivated by money or financial return. The space that he was um, was renting meant something to him on a different level. And so he essentially asked us what we could afford to pay him. And we told him, and, um, and then we asked him for a 15 year lease and he agreed to give that to us, which is, you know, I think I've since learned is pretty unheard of. Um, But it was a, it was really just about this personal relationship. It was obvious that you also uh, gave him a gift too. You enabled him to support something that uh, he saw as being bigger than just you know that that mm-hmm. check at the end of the month. Um, the Chocolate Factory, you know, unlike other art, artistic organizations and spaces, are actually run by artists. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say the importance, Brian, is of an artist space that's actually run by artists instead of by like a staff that runs it and then the, the artists utilize it? Well, I mean, it's, this is always a complicated thing to navigate. And um, there's always, um, because we're working in a field, um, as Craig said in the earlier part of this program, um, just perpetually under-resourced. Um, and independent artists are trying to piece things together. And most of the presenting organizations below a certain size um, are just year after year struggling to survive and keep it going. Um, there can be a real tension between the artist and the presenter around the conditions of, of the work that happens and how money flows. Um, and I think because um, at the time of its founding, I was a working artist and I'm still a working artist. I just have a very direct um, and personal understanding of what um, it takes for an independent artist to, to make a project happen in New York city. And when inviting other artists to come and do a project with us in our space, when the artist knows that I'm also an artist and that I understand these challenges, we can have a conversation around how to make this thing happen. um, That's less hierarchical in some kind of way. Mm. We we don't have to negotiate so much as we can just talk about the challenge and, and collaborate on how to solve the challenge or overcome the challenge. Um, and so there's something culturally inside the organization about that, that I think makes it, um, there's less suspicion on either side around how, on, on how the relationship can unfold. Mm-hmm. Makes and it probably, fun. and probably less breeding ground for, um, uh, resentments and, uh, second guessing about someone's motives because you, you know, you all come from the same place as artists. Yeah, I think so. And there's a lot of trust there. Although I, you know, I would, hes- I would. I would emphasize that, you know, um, building trust in organizational cultures can happen in all kinds of ways. I mean, it's really quite amazing that 
um, that you invited both Craig and I to speak on the same program because we share a lot of the same values and have worked with a lot of the same artists. Um, and I think there's something unique about the culture of the chocolate factory um, that really does spring from the fact that I make work as an artist. Um, but it's, it's one of, it's one of numerous, I think, factors that um, can engender trust between an institution and um, a small scale independent artist who's trying to um, achieve something ambitious. Well, we'll give a shout out and thank Meryl Cooper for connecting me with both you and Craig. Thank you, Meryl. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Brian Rogers, who's one of the founders and artistic director of the Chocolate Factory Theater right here in New York City and Long Island City in Queens. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back and you're back to episode 119 i can't believe this is 119th episode of the show we're looking at arts organizations in new york's but in new york but smaller arts organizations organizations that many people have not heard of but that make up such an important and vital part of the artistic culture of the city my guest for the second segment of brian rogers is brian rogers he's a director filmmaker video and sound artist and the co-founder and artistic director of the chocolate factory um, I have to say, Brian, that we uh, have one little negative fan, uh, our engineer tonight, thought we'd be talking about chocolate a lot more. Well, I'm sorry to yeah. <laughs> I'll have to get her some uh, Hershey's with almonds, which is one yeah. of my favorites. Um, I want to ask you, um, what kinds of um, uh, programming do you create and host at the Chocolate Factory? Mm-hmm. And that also might be a little bit different from what a, people might find at other organizations. Well, I think, you know, we, we call ourselves an incubator space, um, which means that we're supporting um, new developments. Um, so we, you know, we, we try to make a space for the most experimental, or I, I would say just weird things that are happening um, in the artist community, um, uh, which you really, it's, it can be quite hard to find in, in um, larger institutions or more, um, mainstream spaces. Like what, what would you say has been some of your more edgy programming or, or uh, surprising stuff that you've, that, that you've produced? Uh, I mean, there've been so many over the years. And I would say that in a way um, I sort of celebrate our failures more than our successes sometimes, because um, if an artist takes a, you know, a really prominent risk um, and then fails, I still think that's a really important contribution to the, to the, um, to the art form. 
Um, but we've we've had a whole bunch over the years. Um, one there's an artist named David Newman who's made a few um, really important works um, that actually we co-commissioned with the Abrams Art Center. There's an artist named Daniel Fish um, who recently has worked um, on Broadway in a production of Oklahoma, but did a production um, um, drawn from the work of David Foster Wallace that we did a few years ago that I think is a highlight um, and just dozens of others, I would say, actually. And talk about the evolution of an organization. You have a new home now, not from yes. the original landlord. Yes, uh, we do. Yeah, I mean, we, um, and this is really a credit to Sheila Lewandowski, my, uh, the co-founder of the organization with me. But when, you know, when we, uh, more than a decade ago, um, after we'd established um, the long lease relationship with, with, um, with John, our landlord, we really understood um, as the organization began to, gain some traction um, that if we wanted this to survive long-term, we really needed to own a space. I mean, that, uh, as I think most, you know, and probably most of your listeners know, New York city is um, a constantly changing and challenging real estate market. Um, and we knew that if we especially were, especially in long Island city, I mean, yes, all places. yeah, the, the fastest developing neighborhood in New York city. And by some estimations, the country, um, so much as was happening here. And so we started more than 10 years ago to try to find a way to own a building. And it took quite a long time. And there were several um, false starts and um, failed projects. But we, um, we were able to, with the support of, our, of the city of New York, um, and in particular, our city council person or outgoing city council person, Jimmy Van Bramer, we were able to um, um, get some significant support from the city to purchase a building and we finally found a building um, and um, who, uh, whose seller was willing to sell it to us. Um, and the city of New York purchased um, a 7,500 square foot factory building in the neighborhood. We, uh, we closed on in, um, in 2017 and um, we're now going to start, we're going to be full-time occupying that building um, this summer. Oh, great. So is the city leasing it back to you? They're, they're the owners in, no, we're the owners. The city. It was the. Um, it's a. It's a process that I think rarely has ever happened in New York. But the um, the NYC EDC Economic Development Corporation purchased the building on the market on the private market and then um, signed the uh, deed to us. So my organization is the is the owner of the building. Wow. Well, that's probably the most substantial bit of fundraising you've done. I, I wanted yeah, to ask yeah, you, you sure. build a you know, <laughs> in Long Island City, you know, you oh, yeah, write no, a book no, on that. Uh, yeah. You should write a book on how you on how you did that. But you well, know, I wanted to yeah. aside from the city, you know, and uh council member Van Bramer, who even though we're non political, he is running for uh, a Queensborough president today in the primary. That's true. Um uh, what kind of of what is it like to fundraise for the chocolate factory or the challenges that you find that you face because you are an organization that was founded and run by artists and, uh, and, and not sort of mainline and traditional for an arts organization, even a small one. It's yes. It's, I mean, fundraise, I mean, it's, um, this is one of the big lessons um, that I've learned as the leader of an arts organization is that, you know, my title is artistic director and I'm a, and, and curator, but really what um, I spend most of my time doing and Sheila spends, my partner, Sheila spends most of her time doing is raising money. That's really what my job is doing. Mm. Um, and it's incredibly challenging for a small organization um, because we don't have, uh, you know, some of the like large, you know, the large museums, um, or very large established cultural spaces um, raise money in some ways through their attachment to, I don't know, the social register or sort of, you know, the high class. Mm. Um, and that it, would be different for you, obviously. Oh, yes, very much so. We're, we're very low to the ground. We're very, you know, grassroots community based. Um, and so we survive really on um, foundation grants. Um, we spend all of our time writing grants. Um, and similar to Abrams Arts Center, ticket sales are a minuscule portion of our budget. It's le- less than 5%, um, even pre-pandemic. And obviously during pandemic, it's 0%, but um, it's never been a big part of our budget. So yeah, we just, we rely on the, the generosity of foundations and individuals. 
Uh, in the minute we have left, Brian, what kind of programming do you have coming up at the Chocolate Factory? And also, how can people find out about, I suppose, the chocolatefactory.org? Am I right about that? Is that a yes, good chocolatefactorytheater.org yes. okay. is, our, is our website. I encourage everyone to visit. Um, and the most important thing that's happening programming-wise for us right now is we're, um, we're celebrating the closing of our current space, our current rented space. We're actually handing back the keys on um, July 1st. Um, so we have a series of events this week that are celebrating the 17 years we've um, been in that space, culminating this weekend with two afternoons of um, outdoor performances. We're closing off the block in front of the theater um, as part of the Open Culture Program. Um, and um, we have two sort of marathons of performances by artists who have shown work at the Chocolate Factory over the years. Um, and um, that's the thing that I'm most excited about um, in the short term. Great. Well, Brian Rogers, thanks so much for being a guest on the special program about lesser known arts organizations and the important role that you all play in the arts and culture of the city. My second guest has been Brian Rogers. He's the co-founder and artistic director of the Chocolate Factory Theater in Long Island City, Queens, about to move into their new home. Uh, If you have comments or questions about this show or would like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, Mortgage Strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City and in Long Island City as well. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is the amazing Emily Schulman, especially because she loves chocolate, just like I do. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. at www.talkradio.nyc now broadcasting 24 hours a day hey everybody it's tommy d the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic each week here on talkradio.nyc i host a program philanthropy and focus Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2 they say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. 
You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.